Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's December, uh, not December, it's February the 15th, 2022. It's a tough time. To be a CEO these days, CEOs get a lot of flack. They get overpaid, of course. Uh, the Elon Musks and Jeff Bezos is of the world enormously rich. But they live at a time or we live at a time where CEOs have to make incredibly difficult decisions on an ongoing basis. They are the, the modern Argonauts, I guess, of our corporate age. Imagine if you're the CEO of Spotify uh, Daniel Ek, the Scott, uh, the, the Swedish based, um, music and podcasting platform. Um, recently in the news, uh, Joni Mitchell and Neil Young both decided to boycott Spotify because of their so-called Joe Rogan problem. Joe Rogan having a popular hundred million dollars podcast series on Spotify in which he's supposedly promoting um, unscientific advice on the vaccines, but Spotify has other problems too. Uh, the, the Washington Post tells us that the reeling music industry has resulted in the struggles of working musicians who supposedly are exploited by Spotify. Uh, meanwhile, lots of fake lyrics show up on Spotify, including from yesterday, my bloody Valentine and the Copto twins. Um, some people believe that Daniel Ek at Spotify should let anyone on their platform. After all, everyone's free to express themselves. Others strongly disagree. Um, Spotify, of course, responded after the Joni Mitchell, Neil Young boycott. Um, Rogan responded too. He actually stayed with Spotify, uh, even though being offered $100 million to go somewhere else. Um, one of the responses of Spotify was to invest $100 million in content from underrepresented creators. That was what part of a memo from CEO Daniel X suggested. Um, but according to Quartz, there was a perhaps a, an unwritten message in the memo from the Spotify CEO about Joe Rogan, about how to run the company. Neil Young wasn't very impressed with uh, X, um, X memo suggesting to his fans that, uh, and indeed to Spotify employees, uh, that they should get out of that place before it eats up your soul. Now, I'm not sure if we should necessarily feel that sorry for Daniel X. He's an extremely wealthy man, probably close to being a billionaire. But nonetheless, we do live in an age of extremely difficult decisions for CEOs. And that's the subject of our discussion today. My guest is Eric Pliner. Um, he is CEO of a, a consultancy called YSC that focuses on uh, HR decisions, particularly associated with C CEOs. And he has a new book out. Difficult Decisions, How Leaders Make the Right Call with Insight, Integrity, and Empathy. Uh, I guess the subtitle should be How Leaders Should Make the, the Right Call. They don't always make the right call. Um, Eric is joining us. Uh, Eric, where are you talking to me from? Speaking to you from Brooklyn, New York today, Andrew. Brooklyn, New York. So 
Let's let's pile in on Daniel Daniel Eck, Eric. Um, what kind of grade does he get from you in terms of his response to this crisis, which in part is really not his responsibility? All this stuff happened to him uh, as the CEO. You can't blame him for the the Neil Young or the or the Joni Mitchell brouhaha. It's a great question. I think I'd probably give him a fairly low grade, though. Uh, CEOs have things happen to them every single day. And part of our job as leaders is to make sure that we're able to respond to the demands of a very wide variety of constituents. There was a time not so long ago where the priority was, how do we make sure that we can respond to shareholders first, foremost, and always? But now we know from things like the Business Roundtable, from the commitments of lots of CEOs and organizations around the world to diversity, equity, and inclusion, and environmental and social governance, that there are stakeholders and priorities that go just beyond investors. What's a stakeholder, Eric? I always hear this word. It always gives me yeah. the creeps. What does it mean? <laughs> Don't let it give you the creeps, Andrew. It's just somebody who has a vested interest in what your company does. And it makes sense that, uh, that an investor would have a vested interest, but an employee has a vested interest too. A customer has a vested interest too. Anybody who is interacting with or engaging with the company, maybe the community that they're a part of, um, the, the places that they operate around the world, they're all stakeholders of the company. They have something to care about with regard to what the company okay, does. So let's go back to Spotify it. and Daniel Ek and his yeah. stakeholders and his critics and Joni Mitchell and Neil Young and Joe Rogan and all the rest of it. You said you'd give him a, a low grade. Is it above a C? Did he get a B minus perhaps, or is it below a C? You're being generous. It's below a C and here's why. What Daniel Eck did was to try to have it both ways. He said, well, listen, I don't believe in what Joe Rogan says, but I think we need to give uh, free speech to everyone on our platform. We certainly don't want to be seen as censoring or canceling anybody. The problem is Spotify doesn't give a platform to everybody who wants it. They give a platform to artists, entertainers, and thinkers who make money for them. That's part of their job. If Daniel had been forthcoming about that and responded with a bit of integrity, he might find that while some of his stakeholders would be put off, they're probably the same group that are aligned with Neil Young and Joni Mitchell to begin with. And yet he could operate and face his employees with the kind of integrity that's required to, to generate followership. You use the word integrity. Uh, are you suggesting integrity and honesty are bound up with one another and that Eck wasn't really telling the truth in his response? I think he's not telling the whole truth. I'm sure it's probably accurate that he de detests some of the language or framing that, that Joe Rogan uses. But to suggest that that alone is his driving, uh, the driving force behind his thinking is disingenuous. It's disingenuous because if he really truly objected to it, if he felt like this is something I can't stand for, um, then he would stop it. And so it's more complex than just saying, well, I don't believe it, but I'm still going to lead the company that gives voice and gives a platform to this kind of thinking. Putting myself in, in X position, it's hard to imagine, but it seems to me that you've got to get ahead of the curve. You've got to be able to tell the story rather than being driven by the story. Is that fair, Eric? It's completely fair. In fact, absent that, this is going to happen again. Joe Rogan won't be the last controversial artist to be on this platform. And certainly we've seen it with platforms like Netflix, with Dave Chappelle just a few months ago. Somebody will always be saying something that someone finds objectionable. And so the opportunity for leaders like Eck is to get ahead of the curve by saying, this is what we stand for. These are our values. But more importantly, this is what we won't stand for. These are our morals. And this is how that 
uh, exists within the ethical context that's often changing that we operate in today. Jack Dorsey is no longer the CEO of Twitter, but he had to deal with a lot of these storms. Mark Zuckerberg is dealing with endless storms. Are there certain tech executives um, who score better than a C uh, when they're having to make their difficult decisions, particularly in the age of COVID? I'm not sure that I would align it to any particular individual. What I would say is that anybody who is responsible for the creation of a platform has the opportunity to say, this is what we stand for and this is what we won't stand for. And as long as they're going to keep that open without restriction, they have to deal with the consequences that come as a result of that. Same for Zuckerberg, same for Jack Dorsey. But Dan, you're dancing around this one, Eric. Um, has, has, has Zuckerberg passed the test? Did Jack Dorsey? Are, are there models? What about Elon Musk? He's continually dealing with storms. In fact, um, the headlines today in the Wall Street Journal is he gave $5.7 billion of Tesla shares to charity last year. I'm not sure whether that's a PR move and, and how that ended up in the Wall Street Journal. But um, in our age of celebrity CEOs like Musk, yep. who is the quintessential CEO celebrity, yep. um, who's doing well and who's doing badly? I'm not sure that I can identify an individual CEO that I think is doing well. I think what matters is that they're all bad. They're all bad. They're all fucking. No, just because I can't identify one off the top of my head doesn't mean that I think they're all doing poorly. What I think it means is that it's not something that is one and done. It's not like a CEO makes a proclamation, makes a donation, and now they're a good CEO, or a CEO makes a difficult decision in a direction that's harmful, and now they're a bad CEO. What matters is that the context is constantly changing. And so every leader has to regularly be updating the way that they're thinking, what they're communicating, and how they're engaging other people in their decisions. Otherwise, you're only as good as the last decision that you've made. And uh, we would be sitting here listing off every CEO's poor actions as indicative of them as poor leaders. But leadership is a lot more complex than that. Leadership certainly is. We don't know the inner workings, of course, of Spotify or of Daniel Ek. But Perhaps one reason why he responded so badly was getting bad advice. The key is the team around him. I mean, it's not as if Daniel Ek is sitting in a room on his own and responding to this stuff. Do you need, in our age of immediacy, of Twitter, of Facebook, of, of, of breaking news stories that can destroy a company literally overnight, knocking hundreds of billions of dollars off their, their stock value, do, do, do modern CEOs need emergency teams, particularly of communications professionals, to deal with this sort of thing? I think the most successful leaders have teams around them that are doing this kind of thinking all the time. They're not just brought in in, in light of an emergency to say, how is this a crisis communications issue? But instead to be proactively, as you suggest, Andrew, thinking about what actually matters what will we stand for? What will we not stand for? So that when the time comes, and it will come, it comes for every leader, um, that they're ready to respond in a way that reflects what really matters to them, reflects the interests of their shareholders, but also reflects the interests of the other people that are part of their ecosystem, their employees, their customers, their communities. It's got to be all of those things. And it can't just be when there's a crisis or else you will respond in a way that demonstrates that, in fact, we haven't thought about this in advance. When the time comes, Eric, you sound like a mortician saying that we all eventually die. Uh, the, sub <laughs> the subtitle of your book is How Leaders Make the Right Call with Insight, Integrity, and Empathy. 
not a lot of Machiavelli in that subtitle. Um, don't aren't some of the greatest leaders the best storytellers? Perhaps even making stuff up. What, why should they be telling the truth always? <laughs> well, I, I suppose it all comes back to what we believe is moral in the world. There actually is an opportunity for leaders to put a stake in the ground about what's right and what's wrong, what I'm here for, what I can do with my followership, and what's the impact that I want to have. We're at a moment in history where there is a different kind of focus on business that says that business is not only about making people wealthier, but it's also an incredibly powerful force to do good in the world. Isn't Can that use Eric? I don't buy that. What's, what, 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 where, do you, where do you really um, get that from? Because I, I don't see any evidence that businesses have to be or are any more moral today than they were 10, 20, or 100 years ago. In fact, if anything, they're probably less moral. I, I give you a different frame on it, Andrew. I think that there are demands from customers, from employees, and from communities that companies stand behind what they say matters to them. Certainly in the movement for Black Lives just two years ago, we saw evidence of people in the communities where companies were located, employees in those companies, and uh, other stakeholders of those companies saying, we will not continue to engage with you. We will not be part of your workforce. We will not be part of your customer base unless you're willing to make a commitment to what matters to us. Are there, are you, there particular companies you're thinking about in, in that respect, in terms of Black Lives Matter? I think you'd be hard pressed to find a company that didn't come out with a statement but I about what it stands you, Eric, for. But... names of companies, you can't keep on dancing around that one. Give me some examples of companies that have responded positively to that. I'll, I'll tell you why I'm dancing around it, uh, Andrew, because I, it's my view that it's not my place as somebody who, who encourages leaders to think about their own morality and their ethical context to tell them what's right or wrong. It's not about my morality. But you're, you're, not observing, about you're observing the corporate world. Um, there are some leaders, for example, Paul Polman at Unilever, who has been very vocal in his focus on morality, others less interested. Uh, there must be some models that, 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 that impress you. They may not be clients, but surely they come to mind, because otherwise this is all very fluffy and empty. I don't think it's fluffy, fluffy and empty, Andrew. I think the idea is that every leader has an obligation to think about what matters to them. What's, what's the message that they want to put out and what do they want their company to stand for? We can give you lots of examples of things like companies like Best Buy, where Hubert Jolie has put out uh, his framework of leadership prior to becoming the executive chairman and then to eventually retiring and Corey Berry following soon after him, making changes in their engagement with the environment, in their engagement with sustainability, with diversity, equity, and inclusion. Companies like Ralph Lauren that have made a different kind of engagement with their customers under the leadership of Patrice Louvet. I think the point that I'm trying to make is that every leader has a kind of morality, whether they are aware of what it is, whether they operate with it with intent, and whether they do it in a way that benefits their customers, their communities, and their employees is something that will continue to be a defining feature of leadership in this era. Let's talk about a leader who's dead so we don't offend him. Uh, Steve Jobs, he always comes up in these sorts of conversations. Clearly a brilliant leader. I don't know what Apple's valuation is today. It's in the two to three trillion dollar range. They're the most valuable company in the world, the most remarkable company. And of course, Steve Jobs built them on lots of levels, uh, quite literally and symbolically. Um, Tim Cook now runs the company. In many ways, he's the anti-Jobs and might actually speak to your focus on telling the truth and morality. 
But Jobs was a genius, but he wasn't a very nice man. What would you say about the leadership of somebody like Jobs, who clearly was a brilliant leader, but also loathed by many of the people who worked with him, and clearly was a very hard man to deal with and wasn't always very honest. Had his own uh, famous, uh, whatever it was called, was it reality, the Steve Jobs reality ring or whatever it was called. So he basically made stuff up. Yeah. Um, I think there are a lot of different ways to measure what successful leadership is. If you want to measure based solely on the performance of an organization using a financial metric, absolutely. There are lots of ways to categorize extraordinary leaders, including including Steve Jobs. And he's and there are other ways of measuring leadership. I think about leadership as creating the conditions for other people to successfully deliver change. And in that regard, what Steve Jobs did was bring something to the world at a degree of scale that was unprecedented, changing lots of industries and lots of lives along the way. That's incredibly successful. Whether that it's the experience of working for that kind of leader, of following that kind of leader, was successful by the measure of his employees, I think you've already demonstrated that that probably wasn't the case. What's important to know is that the psychological contract that people have with their workplaces, the expectations that consumers have of the companies that they buy from, has changed. And so the kind of leadership that Steve right. Jobs showed would not work today in the same way that it did during his lifetime, because the world is not the same that it was. So uh, the world has changed. Everyone, Eric, as you suggested, is more sensitive, perhaps more vulnerable, and certainly more willing to articulate their anger, um, their sensitivities. There was a piece I found on Market Watch this morning, mm -hmm. one IBM executive called uh, older workers, dino babies in company emails, according to age discrimination lawsuits, is interesting because it reflects the way in which companies are very vulnerable to lawsuits. But it also speaks of whether they're dino babies or young babies. People are incredibly sensitive these days within companies and are very easy to offend. Do you think one of the problems is that people are a little too easy to offend? And the problem is with workers rather than CEOs? No, not at all. I think actually, if we had a more sensitive workforce across the board, our ability to get the most from and with our people would be completely different. Whether people are offended is a function of whether they feel respected or valued. There's not an expectation that nobody ever says anything with which anyone else disagrees. But workplaces that are more open, that encourage people to be sensitive, but thoughtfully sensitive, to ensure that their sensitivity is in service of what the company's trying to do together, those are the workplaces that are going to continue to encourage people to come be a part of them and to stay with them for longer periods of time. It's not about being sensitive or being offended. It's about the kind of dialogue that the company allows and creates internally and the experience of working there. People can, can vote with their feet. They can get up and say, you know what? I don't wanna work here anymore. I don't have to put up with this anymore. We've seen that in an unprecedented manner in the last year, and that's only going to continue. Uh, you bring up the last couple of years, of course, the COVID years. Um, you had a piece in Forbes recently uh, entitled to make return to office work, use basic tenets of effective diversity and inclusion. Um, is that the key? Again, being honest and being willing to engage in principles of diversity and inclusion if we're going to get people back into the office, which is a huge struggle for CEOs. Massive struggle, massive struggle. You want people to be in the office, then we have to recognize them as fully rounded humans who have complex lives that are not just under our ownership 
during the period of, of time from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. or whatever they work. We have to recognize that their lives are more complex, that the way they want to engage with work is more complex and see them and treat them as fully human people. Otherwise, they're going to go somewhere else. They can now. They know that they can have a different kind of balance and integration in their lives, and they're going to continue to do that. Companies that want people in the office have to make an office an appealing place for people to be, or it will begin to become one of the key criteria by which people rule out jobs that they won't even consider. They know that they can find a place that will let them work from home or from a boat or from their house out in the country, and they, uh, they want to have a different kind of engagement with their work and with the rest of their lives. Eric, when should a CEO push back on this stuff when they come across the Novak Djokovic's of the world. Um, he, uh, he, he said today that he'd rather skip Wimbledon and the French Open than get a coronavirus vaccine. I mean, to just taking the example of the coronavirus vaccine, I mean, to open the office, people simply need to take the vaccine. Um, are there times where CEOs need to make the tough decision, which will offend the Djokovic's of the world and perhaps simply say, okay, if you don't want to work here, go and find another job? Absolutely. Absolutely. Every single one of us has the right to work in a workplace where we can have everything we want, every single policy that we want to do everything that we want our own way. And that's if we work for ourselves. Other than that, the minute you join an organization, you become part of a community that has a goal that is greater than you alone. That means that we have shared interests. And among those interests is the public health of our employees. We don't allow our employees to defecate in the hallways of our workplaces. That's in the interest of public health. Guess what? Same thing around vaccines. There are some times where leaders have to make choices to say, actually, the health, the well-being of our collective is more important than every single individual's desire. And in service of being able to deliver what we're here to do together, we've got to have some rules and some guidelines about how we're going to work together. Those boundaries are going to keep changing. So CEOs have to be in touch with them. But it is completely appropriate for a CEO to say, you know what? I think this is where we need to draw the line. Eric, you're... Um... You're, uh, you're the head of uh, YSC, which is a consultancy, a corporate consultancy. Yes. What's your sense of politics, though? Does this carry over into the political space? The current United States CEO is Joe Biden. He doesn't seem to be doing a very dynamic job. He seems to be making everyone unhappy. What advice would you give political leaders at a time when everyone seems angry and offended, uh, and particularly with figures of authority? Yeah. Yeah. I think people are angry. I think people are angry at the world and their life circumstances, and they're looking for someone to direct that anger towards. And so political figures and other leaders in their lives are really easy places to channel that anger. I think that the political figures who try to make everyone happy are going to make no one happy. And so the best thing that any political leader can do, same thing that I said for, for a corporate leader, is to be really clear about what you stand for, what you won't stand for, and what your constituents, call them stakeholders, call them constituents, what the people that have a vested interest in what you do have to say about all those things. You're never going to make everyone happy, but can you make enough people happy to be able to achieve your agenda? I think if you're clear about what that agenda is, you absolutely can. Do you have political models for that? We had a show recently about Winston Churchill. He may not have been the most decent of men, but he was a brilliant storyteller, which explained, I think, his political success, uh, although it also perhaps made sense of a lot of his political failures. Uh, are there particular storytellers in a corporate, sporting, or entertainment or political space that you think we can learn from in this sense? 
Actually, I think that this is, I'm going to give you an opposite answer this time, rather than saying there's no one that I want to name, there's probably everyone that I'd want to name here. Virtually every leader at some point has to figure out how to be a brilliant storyteller who, uh, who captures the imagination, the attention of their audience. And so you see people, in fact, some of the most highly objectionable people, some of the folks that are the source of these controversies, even somebody like Joe Rogan, not a political figure himself, but certainly someone who traffics in political content, telling a story in a way that appeals to people. Donald Trump, a leader who managed to tell a story in a way that captivated his constituents. On the other side of the aisle, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, somebody who taps into her own story and who tells the story of what she believes that the, the government needs to accomplish in a way that connects with her voters. The divisions that we're seeing are a function of people having really different kind of life experiences. And so people will always connect with storytellers who are able to capture their imaginations, capture the reality of their lived experiences and do it in a charismatic way. What about Donald Trump? I think Donald Trump's masterful at the art of captivating people through storytelling. Um, now, whether that translates into execution, whether that aligns with the morality of many of his constituents while he was the president of the United States, and whether there is integrity to that storytelling, entirely different matter, not my place to comment on. But in terms of the, the, the power of his storytelling, absolutely masterful. Uh, Daniel, uh, uh, sorry, Eric, I keep on calling you Daniel. That's a sorry. Freudian Eric thinking you as Daniel Eric. Spotify uh, guy, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, Eric is the uh, CEO of YSC, uh, 250 persons um, uh, consulting uh, business. Um, how hard is it to run a 250 person company, Eric, in terms of making these difficult decisions? Do you think running a small company is harder than running? Spotify with its thousands of employees? No, I don't think it's harder by any stretch. The more people you add into the mix of any system, the more complex that system becomes. But I think it's got its challenges. There are plenty of difficult decisions that we make every day about when, when do we want our people to return to office? How do we make a decision about vaccination? The, our our 250-person consultancy exists across 15 countries where the, there are different policies and norms and expectations about how people interact and about how companies operate. There's incredible complexity even in a small firm, which gives me tremendous empathy and compassion for the leaders of 40,000, 50,000, 150, 200,000 person firms all over the world. How do you get empathy and compassion? You seem to have a lot of it, Eric. I don't have much. Where am I going to find some? <laughs> well, the first thing you do is you spend time with other people, Andrew, and I think it's something yeah, that you, you do all the time. <laughs> yeah, well, you spend time well, with people here. Actually, empathy and compassion. I mean, that's the uh, the subtitle of your uh, of, of the book, uh, How Leaders Make the Right Call with Insight, Integrity, and Empathy. Uh, are leaders born or are they made? No, I, th I, think, I think everybody is born with the kernels of things that can turn into leadership, but the experiences that we have in our lives develop us into, into good leaders, effective leaders, or less so. The more time you spend hearing other people's stories, uh, living in their communities, spending time in their homes, the more you understand who they are as real humans and not just as sound bites, the greater the likelihood that you'll have empathy for what it's like to walk. I spend all day talking to guys like you, writers, thinkers, authors, artists. Doesn't make me any more empathetic or sympathetic. It actually makes me more <laughs> intolerant. Maybe that's my problem. Too, too many stories from too many people. What you need is the real lived experience. We'll have you over for tea and then we'll see if you develop a little bit of empathy for me that way. We'll have you over for tea. You mean in New York? Yeah, why not? We have tea in New York. 
And how would you make me more empathetic over just to by, you? Just by sitting and asking you to tell me about the story of your life and giving you an opportunity to tell you to, to tell, for me to tell you about mine. I think there are, there are things that none of us would expect in the lives of everyone that we encounter. And the more that we understand those complexities uh, and those realities and how they affect the way that we see the world, the more we develop compassion for one another. And how different is that, Eric, from therapy, me just going to a therapist and talking about my life? Well, I'm not trying to heal you. I want to understand you. I think okay. a therapist no, is we're not in the healing business. You're just understanding. But you are trying to heal me. You're trying to make me more compassionate. Um, well, I don't know if I'm ready to take on trying to make you more compassionate, Andrew. But yeah, you've given you, up already, Eric. It, it, it only took 20 really. minutes. It only you took know, 20 there are minutes. Some people living beyond the pale. Yeah. I don't have integrity, insight, or empathy, but many people do. And Eric's new book, Difficult Decisions, How Leaders Make the Right Call with Insight, Integrity, and Empathy, I think is a relevant book for probably everyone except for me. Um, congratulations, <laughs> Eric, on the book. What else should people be reading in these compassionate, empathetic times? Yeah, well, maybe not in our yet. post-COVID but... age as we hopefully slink out of, of, of this terrible last two years. I think anything that helps people to understand folks who are different from them in some way is a great way to develop that empathy and compassion. And that's the stuff that I would recommend people read. What do I mean by that? Yes, read business books. Read Hubert Jolie's The Heart of Business. Uh, it's a fantastic book that'll give you a sense about meaning and purpose in a Fortune 100 company, but also read fiction. Uh, one of my favorite novels of the past year is Donnie Walton's the final revival of Opal and Nev, a terrific story about uh, two musicians coming together in the 1960s between the US and the UK and developing a reputation that preceded both of them and that would affect both of their lives for decades to come. A scintillating read with a fantastic historical backbone, one that'll give you empathy and compassion for lots of people with lives. So we need to escape ourselves. Maybe that's my challenge. Do you think I have more or less empathy than Joe Rogan? <laughs> I think Joe Rogan makes a lot of money by not uh, demonstrating empathy, whether he has it as a person. Yeah. Are you no suggesting idea. I don't make a lot of money? I have no idea how much money you make, but I bet you could be even less empathetic than Joe Rogan if you try, Andrew. I'll try. Maybe that, that maybe then I'll get the $100 million offer from Daniel Eck if he's watching on Spotify. So, Daniel, if you get tired of Joe Rogan, I'm always here, and I'll take half that $100 mil and offend even more people. Eric Pliner. Yes. Uh, real fun to have you on the show. Um, you're the author of Difficult Decisions, How Leaders Make the Right Call with Insight, Integrity, and Empathy. You also run uh, YSC for people who want your professional advice. Uh, keep well, Eric. I keep on wanting to call you Daniel. Daniel. Keep well, Eric. And um, keep thinking good thoughts. Remain the optimist because we need guys like you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Andrew. It's been a pleasure.